This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh. Before we get to the show, NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. Help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey, all one word. We would so appreciate it. And thank you for your support for NPR podcasts. Again, it's at npr.org slash podcast survey. Pride and Prejudice. It's maybe one of the greatest love stories of all time, right? And certainly one of my favorites. Jane Austen's classic has everything. Humor, heart, insight on class and gender that was before its time. And that irresistible tension between central characters Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy. I'm there for it every time. The story has been adapted every which way, from the classic BBC miniseries. The relative situation of our families is such that any alliance between us must be regarded as a highly reprehensible connection. To the 2005 movie starring Kira Knightley. You're too proud, Mr. Darcy. And would you consider pride a fault or a virtue? That I couldn't say. Because we're doing our best to find a fault in you. Maybe it's that I find it hard to forgive the follies and vices of others or their offenses against me. My good opinion once lost is lost forever. Even Pride and Prejudice zombies. Yep. This is your opinion of me. Then I thank you for explaining it so fully. (laughs) Now there's a new twist on Pride and Prejudice, and it's set far, far away from Regency-era England. You'll find the latest version of the story on present-day Fire Island, and the Elizabeth and Darcy-inspired characters are played by two queer Asian men. I've loved Pride and Prejudice since I was a little boy. I grew up watching the BBC miniseries with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely with my mom since the time I was like, you know, eight or nine years old. That story has been deep, deep, deeply imprinted on me. That's Joel Kim Booster, writer and star of the new movie Fire Island. He said the idea for his take on the story came to him while on the island with his friend and co-star Bowen Yang. I just remember going to Fire Island for the first time with Bowen and bringing Pride and Prejudice with me to read as my beach read. And it was the first time I'd ever read the story. And I just remember putting down the book and looking at Bowen, you know, throughout the week and just being like, wow, like everything that she is talking about in this book is so relevant to what we're experiencing on this island. I talk with Joel all about how Fire Island subverts rom-com norms, honors his queer friendships, and tells a specific story that still feels universal. And just a heads up, y'all, in this interview, we do talk about drug use and sex. I loved the movie and really enjoyed the chat with Joel, and I hope you do too. The film is called Fire Island. It's set on Fire Island. Give us a sense of the place. Paint a picture for us. Yeah, so Fire Island is a, a teeny tiny sliver of an island off of Long Island in New York. And it is for, you know, for a generation now, it's been sort of a safe haven and an enclave for queer people, gay men and women and trans people during times when it was uh, illegal for us to gather. Yeah. People have been going to Fire Island to feel safe and to feel a sense of community. Um, and now it's, you know, it's transformed in in sort of modern day culture into sort of just a, another gay destination vacation spot. But it really is so one of a kind and, and unique. There's no cars, what? you know. Yeah, it is. It is wild. And um, 
you know, in that way, it, it just feels so magical. And it's, you're never more than a few steps away from the beach. And, and the history of the island too, I think is so tangible when you step foot in on the island, you can really, you know, if you know what that island means has meant to this community, you can feel it in the air. What does Fire Island mean to you? Um, you know, Fire Island means a lot of things to me, but ultimately, uh, and most importantly, it's been this place where I, I really have galvanized my chosen family, you know, mm. like my closest gay friends and I have, have really like had some of our most, you know, transformative experiences and where I felt sort of closest to, to who I am and my most authentic self. I think that there, you know, as a, as a gay guy in this, in a heterosexual world, you don't yeah. realize the weight you carry around with you day after day, sort of navigating a heteronormative, you know, society until yeah. you go to a place like Fire Island and suddenly all of that weight is lifted and you, and you can be, you know, a much freer version of yourself than you were before. Is there a transformative memory that sticks out for you? Yeah, um, it, it was probably the second trip that I ever took to Fire Island with Bowen, and we did acid on the beach. And it was <laughs> the first time I'd ever done LSD. And I did the one thing you're not supposed to do when you do LSD. I looked in the mirror. Oh, God. Um, I know, but for me, and I've done it since, and I, I, I have not had a similar experience. But for me, it really was like, it was healing. It was like the first time I ever looked at myself with... Um, a sense of objectivity, you know, like what did you see, Joel? I I just saw sort of myself as a as a beautiful person for the mm. first time. I think you know I was so used to feeling invisible and undesirable in our community, and um and letting that sort of have a power over me, having mm. uh, letting other people have power over me in that way, and it was really the sort of the first step towards accepting myself for who I am, and 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 not letting that sort of all the the bullshit sort of uh, poison my mind and and let it affect my sense of self-conception. Some of this magic that happened for you translates in the film, too, in the fictional Fire Island, the movie. So talk to us a little bit about the film. Set it up for us. So, yeah, the movie is about uh, my character Noah um, going for an annual trip to Fire Island with his chosen family, his group of friends, which include Bowen Yang's Howie. And um, Howie and Noah are, are very close. They have a very deep relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, Howie, I think it represents sort of a more um, the version of of queerness that like is in that sort of pre-acid, you know, uh, version of myself that <laughs> okay. is, you know, afraid of going around these places and, and letting sort of that invisibility of being Asian and gay affect them. And, and my mission becomes, my character's mission becomes to, by the end of the week, to fix my friend, basically. And his, <laughs> and his way of fixing his friend is by getting him laid. And right. um, he thinks that, you know, that would solve all his problems if he could just get him laid once or twice or even more times than that. And so he sets out to, to find his best friend, um, a, a sex partner, basically. And then, you know, chaos ensues. Coming up, Joel talks about portraying an honest version of Fire Island. Stick with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This message comes from the run-through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. What I so enjoyed about this film was that it was both a group trip comedy with parties and hijinks, but it's also a rom-com. It's a Pride and Prejudice adaptation. Yeah. (laughs) Classic Jane Austen, only gay and on Fire Island. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So as a writer, how did you approach it? I think that Jane Austen, you know, really writes so beautifully about class and the class differences yes. and the ways in which people communicate across class lines and and how people, you know, eventually dismiss some of those class lines and and, and sort of break out of them and, and ignore them completely. And I thought it was so beautiful because as, as wonderful and as transformative as Fire Island mm-hmm. is, it is a really great example of what happens when, you know, there's no one around to oppress us. We do begin to oppress each other and create sort of artificial class lines, you know, that have to do with money, sure, but also, you know, body image and masculinity and race. Um, And so it just, it started a little bit as a joke. I kept saying, wouldn't it be funny if I wrote a gay Pride and Prejudice set on Fire (laughs) Island and people would boo and hiss and throw things at me and uh, tell me to shut up. But, you know, Bowen and I kept going back to Fire Island and every summer I would bring a new Jane Austen book with me to read. And it just, you know, slowly over time, it just began to, to crystallize this story of, of these artificial class lines and about two people who would fall in love across them and, and how that might play out in contemporary gay society. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating that you're able to address, right? Because there are those dynamics at play in which there are social hierarchies among gay men. You mentioned in the film the classic no fats, no femmes, no Asians bigotry and grinder mm-hmm. profiles. No fats, no femmes, no Asians. No overboo. You're still two out of the three. And then Fire Island for all of its magic, also has a reputation for being very white and very rich and yeah. somewhat fat-phobic. So yeah. I take it from your explanation that this was intentional to address these desirability politics. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, for me, it really was about reflecting my honest experience on the island mm. and, and Bowen's honest experience on the island. And, and you know, I, I, it would, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of show everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, and that is a reality of, of, of vacationing on that island. And the thing is, is like it, I, I don't want people to, to not go because of that. It's very easy. If you go with your chosen family, if you go with your best friends, like you can have whatever kind of experience you want on that Island, but you know, there is real discrimination that, that occurs and that I've experienced myself. I mean, there's a scene in the movie where a guy says, to the group as they're entering a party. I think you have the wrong house. Mm. And that is something that has happened to me a number of times. Yeah. Hi, is Charlie here? I think you may have the wrong house. Why would you think that? I wanted it to feel like a real trip. And those, unfortunately, those elements are, you know, always sort of running in the background. So there was that painful element but also a lot of good. Yeah. Because another big theme throughout is the queer Asian best friend pair between your character of Noah and Bowen Yang's character, Howie. How has Mm -hmm. that kind of friendship, and maybe even your real-life friendship with Bowen, because I know you two are good friends, how has that been meaningful to you? It's been sort of really life-changing having Bowen in my life. I, You know, I grew up in a predominantly white community. My family is white. I'm adopted. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of close Asian friends mm -hmm. and to have Bowen now, since the moment we met, it just felt like being seen by another person for the first time. You know, our, our experiences, while our backgrounds might be very dissimilar, you know, like our experiences as queer Asian men navigating this community have been so similar and navigating Hollywood too. I mean, to have someone who understands that, I cannot tell you how many times I've communicated with Bowen from across the room or across the bar or without saying anything. Mm -hmm. And he just understands. And, and to have someone in your life that just sees you in that way is, is so powerful. And, um, you know, I, I hope that if, if you don't have that in your life now that like this, this um, movie inspires you to, to find it. I think this, the movie, as much as it's a rom-com and it's a romance between, you know, two sets of couples, like in Pride and Prejudice, yeah. it's also a love story between two friends. And, um, I really wanted to celebrate that friendship that I have. Talk us through the love stories a little bit. Um, what were you wanting to say with the two pairs, Howard and Charlie and Noah and Will? I had the blueprint in Pride and Prejudice, yeah. you know, and um, what I always loved about that story is that you have Jane and, and, and Bingley who are so pure and so, you know, immediately right yes. for each other and in love. And it's all this sort of artificial stuff around them that keeps <laughs> them apart. And it's such a classic rom-com trope, you know? And so what I wanted was to really honor sort of all of the rom-coms that I grew up loving with that story. Yeah. You know, like I grew up worshiping at the altar of Nora Ephron. I, you know, when Harry Same. met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, Same. you've got mail, all of them. I love them so much. And I wanted to, you know, really have my cake and eat it too. I think with these two relationships, because Howie does get what you you could say is a, a pretty traditional rom-com arc in the movie. And then you have my arc between Noah and Will, where it's a little bit more combative and a little bit more complicated and a little bit more ambiguous yeah. what actually happens with their relationship. And I think it's it's a little bit more, I don't want to say realistic, but it is truer, I think, to to many people's experience of falling in love on vacation than, than um, possibly meeting the love of your yeah. life, you know? Yeah. And we should mention the film is also super sexy and includes fun sex parties with um, a real buffet of pairs or threes <laughs> getting down. And I got to say, it was really refreshing, right? Because a lot of romance or rom-coms obscure the getting freaky part. So I really was, I was curious, how intentional was it to include scenes with gay sex as part of the larger heartfelt main story? Well, you know, it's interesting, like, it is all a part of the fabric of the island. You know, sex is a big part of Fire Island for a lot of people's experience of Fire Island. I, I, a lot of people go there and don't have sex. In fact, I have gone many times and not had sex. Isn't the only reason some people come here. No, that is the only reason that you come here. No, I also come here to read. I contain multitudes. But I think that it is a part of that authenticity and the reality that I was looking to depict, yeah. you know, like I'm going to include all of the racism and I'm also going to include all of the joy. And I'm also going to include all of the sex. Yeah. And so that was a big part of it for me. And I think like, it feels like I pulled off the biggest scam in the world that I've gotten, you know, Disney to produce two gay orgies now. on <laughs> film. I was going to ask, did you get any pushback from Disney? We, we were told that we could have as many butts as we wanted, but no poll. Um, oh. And so that was the only real pushback that we received. I can't wait to use this as a poll quote. <laughs> Be free with butts, but no poll. Yeah, exactly. Up next, Joel talks about subverting the traditional heterosexual rom-com formula. Stick around. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. Let me ask you a more meta question, Joel Booster. Okay. Mainstream culture often holds up stories about marginalized people, right? Be it Asians like the two of us or be it queer people as learning experiences for everyone else. Like, mm-hmm. hey, look at how much we're trying to learn from these minorities. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But your film, and especially in Bowen Yang's character of Howie, that highlights the way those of us in marginalized groups also personally internalize mainstream cultural values and let dominant culture, usually white, usually straight, mm-hmm. teach us a lot of things about ourselves and what we should want. So I'm curious how that's shown up for you in your life. As you mentioned, you're a Korean adoptee and grew up with white parents. And as you've gotten older, how has internalizing dominant culture maybe limited some of your assumptions? Yeah, I guess for me, the experience of being a transracial adoptee has sort of instilled in me this this sense of never quite belonging um, mm. in in any space that I've occupied. Mm. And, and it, it's really um, jarring and it can be dissociative almost sometimes mm. um, being in these spaces. And so when I experience dominant culture, um, you know, I think many minorities have the experience of having to project their experience onto experiences that aren't quite for them, you know, and that is what I've had to do just on a life scale, not just with media, but just in my life, having to project, you know, myself onto my white family or having to project my experience on my Asian friends who don't understand what it is to to not have a connection to an Asian family, you know, and, and so it's, it's really, um, it's a tightrope walk, you know, and I think that it's experience that I I hope people are able to sort of see in the movie. And I also hope that, you know, there's a question of like, will straight people be able to enjoy this movie? Well, you know, gay people have had to, you know, project themselves onto your experiences for, yeah. you know, centuries now. I think <laughs> that, you know, it's a skill that we've had to learn and I think it's a good skill to have. And I hope that, you know, straight people are open to to learning it while watching this movie. I got to say, I identify as straight and I loved this movie. I thought okay. it was <laughs> Thank a you near so perfect much. movie. Um, and I don't want to spoil too much about the ending, but there is no wedding at the end, no baby. In fact, there's a declaration from the characters against monogamy. What about you? What do you want? You probably want some gay marriage nightmare. Join Instagram account as a French bulldog. God, God no, it's, I don't think monogamy's for me. Yeah, I mean, same. What was behind giving the characters a different kind of relationship from what we see in a lot of straight rom-coms? Um, you know, there's this there's this thing I think about writing a, a queer quote unquote rom-com is that I think a lot of the instincts we have and that we've seen from Hollywood previously is like, oh, just make when Harry met Sally, but make all the characters men or make all the characters women and just tell that same story, but with, you know, different genders. And it it just doesn't work that way. Like, you know, there are so much 
varied ways that 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 queer people experience love and experience relationships and i just i wanted to honor that and, exp- and especially honor my own experience you know as a person who doesn't want necessarily the traditional you know heteronormative meet you know one person and marry that person monogamous and, and marriage m- monogamous right. marriage you know yeah. and i you know i'm not saying that that is everyone's experience in my community. Uh, certainly there are many people that I know who are gay people who are happily married and monogamous and that works for them. But I think that like, I wanted to honor the breadth of experience um, that, you know, our community represents. And, you know, there is a more traditional love story in the movie. And I, I, I wanted to sort of show the two poles, basically. What do you think it means for future generations if more of us people of color and more queer people call out untruths, actually challenge assumptions like marriage and monogamy, and stand in our unique perspectives, or like you, make films about those perspectives? I really, with this movie, I wanted to tell my story, and mine and Bowen's story specifically, and really, you know, I... I've been asked several times, like, how does this represent the universal gay experience? And it doesn't, oh it, it, it represents <laughs> mine. And what I hope is that like by doing a movie that is so specific to me and my story, that it'll show people that we don't have to water down our stories. We don't have to water down our narratives. There is room for all of us to tell you know, the very specific stories of our lives without having to sort of filter it through what seems you know marketable or bankable anymore it's almost a relief that this is a streaming movie because i don't have to worry about the box office it can find the audience it's going to find and and it can be as specific as as this movie is without you know having to worry necessarily about appealing to a broad audience yeah and there is something beautiful though that when there are very specific stories out there it really touches something universal so yeah. they actually say that about writing right that you're supposed to write very specific and somehow it's universal it's a paradox yes exactly Joel Kim Booster we so enjoyed it thank you so much thank you thanks again to Joel Kim Booster writer and star of Fire Island it is out right now on Hulu All right, this episode was produced by Liam McBain and edited by Jessica Mendoza and Tamar Charney. We had engineering support from Robert Rodriguez. Y'all, this is my last episode guest hosting It's Been a Minute for a Minute. It's been so much fun, and I'm going to miss y'all. Of course, we want you to come back here for more It's Been a Minute on Friday with the amazing B.A. Parker, who's going to be guest hosting. For that, we want to hear the best thing that happened to you all week. Record yourself and email the file to us at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. And just once again, NPR is doing its annual survey. It is survey time so that we can better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. Help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey, all one word. We would really appreciate your support npr.org slash podcast survey, all one word. Okay, thanks, y'all. All right, and until Friday, thank you for listening. I'm Elise Hugh. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home. Home. What we all eventually long to get back to, no matter what took us away to begin with. Those at Delta know that, because all 100,000 of them are, above all, travelers just like you. It's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.